0: Today is our 10th study in the New Testament letter of 2 Corinthians. Uh, For those who have no idea what 2 Corinthians is, it is a book which is found in the New Testament. And um, it's written by St. Paul, and it was written to a church in ancient Greece in the city of Corinth. And it's called 2 Corinthians because it was written about a year after an earlier letter he wrote to the same church. That letter is also found in our New Testament, and surprise, surprise, it's called 1 Corinthians. You you didn't guess that, did you? Didn't see that one coming. The seven whole chapters to date that we have been studying over the last nine weeks, Paul has been defending his ministry to um, the Corinthian Christians who said that Paul was a man who could not be trusted. And some of them claimed that he wasn't a genuine apostle. And uh, they attacked his leadership, they accused him of inconsistencies, they impugned his motives, they questioned his credentials. But now we get to chapter 8, and the subject changes. And some of you might say, hallelujah, at last. But then we discover that the new subject is money. Or more specifically, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, about an offering that was promised by them to some impoverished Christians who were living in Jerusalem. And for the next two chapters, so essentially this week and next week, Paul encourages the Corinthian Christians to give generously to these poor Christians who were living in Jerusalem. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning... Please don't think that we talk about money here every Sunday. That is far from the truth. And we're not the kind of church that has a giant thermometer outside giving us details on how we can contribute to the new roof fund or new organ fund. We don't hold jumble sales or whist drives to bolster our income. And for that matter, we don't even take an offering on a Sunday morning. So please relax. You're our guests. And we're not after your money. But we do think it's important not to shy away from ever talking about money, especially when we come to these chapters. I say this is the 10th in our series, and this is the next chapter that we're dealing with on finance and on this uh, gift to the uh, Jerusalem believers. And it's also important, I believe, that on occasions to talk about money because we as Tamworth Elim Church, we seek to be generous We seek to be generous to our community. We seek to be generous to those on the margins of society. And we support projects in other countries as well, such as Malawi. And soon, we are going to be introducing to you another project that we will be wanting to support as a church, which is called the Be Free Project. And that's for women who have been sex trafficked in um, Cambodia. And we'll tell you more about that in the future. But it goes without saying that if we are seeking to be generous, we need to be practical as well. And Paul's words in these two chapters are very, very practical, as you'll find out. Now, generosity was certainly the hallmark of the church since its earlier days. And Luke provides us with a wonderful insight of what the church, the first church in Jerusalem was like. Just weeks after the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And Luke writes in Acts chapter 2 these words. He says that all of the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Wow. How amazing is that? Imagine being a part of a church just like that. And then shortly afterwards, he writes in Acts chapter 4, There was no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So this early church in Jerusalem just overflowed with generosity. And they continued over the years the way that they'd started because later on when Paul uh, met the apostles who were seen to be pillars of the Jerusalem church, people like Peter and John and James, he noticed that that generosity still abounded. And when Paul recalls the meeting that he had with these, um, these leaders of the Jerusalem church, the mother church, you could say, um, he recalls this in his letter to Galatians. And he says that he and Barnabas were commissioned to go and take the gospel, the message of Christ, to the entire Roman Empire, to the Gentile world, to the non-Jewish world. And they were commissioned to be those apostles, just as Peter was commissioned to be an apostle to the Jews. But there was one proviso. There was one thing that they asked Paul and Barnabas. And this is what he says in Galatians 2, verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. And Paul adds, that was the very thing I was eager to do. So they're all singing from the same song sheet there. And Paul was true to his word. And during his travels, he encouraged financial support from many of the churches which he founded way out in the Roman Empire. So that they would collect money for these Poor, impoverished, persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. And the two chapters that we're going to be looking at today and next week provide us with some of the most important teaching that we have in the New Testament on Christian giving. And Paul, Paul's no punches here, and we might find his words very direct this morning. And in these chapters, Paul is encouraging. Cajoling, challenging these Corinthian Christians to stop dragging their feet and actually to put their hands in their pockets to help out the poverty-stricken Christians in Jerusalem. You see, about a year before that, they'd started an offering going, but then they lost their way and they eased up. We're not told why. Perhaps the Corinthians were saying to themselves, why should we have to provide for other people? We haven't got much money ourselves. Don't know. Might have been the reason. But if that was the reason for not following through on the gift that they promised, then Paul just pulls the rug from under their feet when he tells them about the Macedonian Christians. And it's all about to get embarrassing. Very embarrassing for the Corinthians. It's also interesting to note that um, Paul never runs down or criticizes one church to another church. He never does that. But on occasions, he uses churches like the Macedonian Christians, the Macedonian church, as a good example, and he holds it up to stir up and to stimulate and to motivate the faith in other, in, in, in other churches. So, that's a little bit of the background, and this morning, I want us to work through the passage together, and I'll put uh, most of the uh, verses up on screen that we're going to be looking at this morning. So we're going to start. If you've got your Bibles there, please open them 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. We're looking at verse 1, uh, reading from the New International Version this morning. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, Now I'll leave those scriptures up on screen. There's a number of things that Paul says here which are really, really important for our understanding this morning. The first thing that he says is that these Macedonian Christians that he was holding up as an example, a good example to the Corinthians who weren't a particularly good example at that time, was that the Macedonians were in extreme poverty. And the funny thing is that when the Bible provides an example of generosity... It always seems that the Bible chooses a a poor person. For example, the widow who put two small copper coins in the offering. And Jesus commented that this was all that she had to live on. Remember the ex-prostitute who broke an alabaster jar of expensive perfume over Jesus as an act of worship. Again, she was not a high society person with lots of money. And now we come to this chapter. It's the Macedonian Christians who have nothing. They live in the extreme poverty that Paul holds up as an example of wonderful generosity. And then in verse 2, Paul speaks of their overflowing joy. Despite their severe trials, despite their extreme poverty, these Christians had overflowing joy. They were happy people. Why? Why? it was because their happiness was not dependent on circumstances. Their happiness came from within, not from without. It was because they had a relationship with Jesus. And this joy was a joy that they had in their hearts. It caused them to look at life differently. And it motivated them to give generously. uh, Bishop Michael Bourne, the former Bishop of Chester, he wrote a book uh, entitled Spiritual Health Warning*. And in that book, he wrote about these Macedonian Christians. And this is what he says. To the non-Christian and the unreleased Christian. That's an interesting phrase, unreleased Christian. Are we unreleased Christians? To the non-Christian and the unreleased Christian, that is simply staggering and impossible to believe. Yet joy and giving are inseparably linked. I've had the privilege of being a minister to congregations in Manchester and London that have, been, that have tackled huge building projects for Christ, requiring considerable financial sacrifice. I can tell you that in both place, places, as the projects developed, the givers became more joyful and the m- non-givers became more miserable. On major gift days, a look across the congregation showed in a flash who gave and who did not. I remember a little old lady living in a very simple house in Manchester, wondering how she could give. Suddenly, she remembered the only valuable thing she possessed, a lovely dinner service tucked away in a box. As she, gave, and she went and sold it and brought the proceeds to my house. As she gave it to me, her face was radiant and she was crying with joy. Jesus' words really are true in experience. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is a truth that flies in the face of the get, get, get world in which we live. What else do we find out about these? They gave as much as they were able. There was no holding back. They were not miserly and mean, but rather they were overflowing and generous. Isn't it interesting that the words miserable and misery are from the same root? They're really an extension of the word miser. I wonder why that is. Let me know. Replies on a postcard. (laughs) They gave according to their means. But Paul tells us more than that. And even beyond their ability former president of USA, Jimmy Carter, once said, when it comes to giving, some people stop at nothing. Think about that. You see, that couldn't be said about the Macedonians. They probably went without themselves in order to give a gift to these other Christians who were living in Jerusalem. We're not told how they did it. It may be that they had one meal a day instead of two. It may be that they had one meal every other day. Maybe that they did extra shifts at work. We're, we're not told. C.S. Lewis puts it this way He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. And that's the, what the Macedonians did. And Paul uses their example to stimulate the faith of the Corinthians. But not only the Corinthians, of Christians all the way down through the ages, and even Tamworth Elim Church today. I've been reading this this week, and I have been inspired by these wonderful people, the Macedonian Christians. What else does Paul tell us? He says that they gave entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Wow. They didn't give out a duty. They didn't give out of obligation. It was no burden to them. Rather, it was a privilege. It was a privilege. Someone said that there are three sorts of giving. There's duty giving, which says, uh, I ought to give. There's grudge giving, which says, I, I have to give. But there's also thanksgiving, which says, I love to give. It's a great privilege and a, and a pleasure to do so. And theirs was thankful giving, And they gave out a thankful heart because they recognized the grace of God that they had received. It was uh, Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, who once said that there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the mind, and the wallet. And of these three, the conversion of the wallet is the most difficult. You see, people who are not Christians, they simply cannot understand this. They would understand what I'm speaking about this morning as a waste. There's so many other things that you should use your money on, they would say. Keep it, save it, spend it. For heaven's sake, don't give it away. And the idea is preposterous to them. And let's be honest, you know, at face value, they've got a point. Because there's nothing so daft, it would seem, at face value, of giving away your hard-earned cash. But to the person who has been truly understood what it is to be a Christian, that isn't foolishness at all. It's a natural and reasonable response. And Paul tells us that they did this entirely on their own. They weren't encouraged, they weren't pressurized, they weren't coerced or cajoled in any way. A few years ago in this church, um, some people couldn't quite understand why we decided to stop taking up a morning offering on our main service Uh, in the the week on a Sunday morning service and some people anticipated that as we did that that we would as a church um, uh, it would just create financial hardships among us but there were three reasons that we did this first reason We did not want our visitors, and and we get many visitors, and you may be in visiting us this morning, it's so lovely to see you. We did not want our visitors to be embarrassed by an offering plate being put under their noses, and we didn't want to endorse the stereotype of many churches that are supposedly only out for your money. We wanted our visitors to, to know that they are welcome, they are our guests. And we're not after their money. The second thing that we did this for, the reason, was that we do not want to pressurize anybody else in our own congregation in, in giving. Because we would hate the thought of people giving only because they felt too embarrassed not to. If I don't put some money in the box, then some, what, what, what will other people think? if the box passes me by and that was probably the case that some people might have even thought that way and the third reason we were just happy to trust God and we were also happy to trust our church family that you would continue giving to the Lord's work here and if you chose not to give then that was between you and the Lord no one is looking over your shoulder and I thank God that we did that and I'm glad that we did it and it was out of, us, out of integrity that we did that and uh, our giving has increased and if you are someone here this morning that regularly and sacrificially gives to the mission of Helium Church I just want to say thank you thank you for giving so faithfully and sacrificially to what we are trying to do here for the sake of God's kingdom. Through Timothelium Church. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then to us. Verse 5. Well that's the key isn't it when you think of it. That is absolutely the key. The reason that these Macedonian Christians. Had such a spirit and a heart of generosity was because they'd given themselves totally to the Lord. Their hearts were surrendered to Jesus, and because their hearts were surrendered to Jesus, money didn't have that same hold upon them any longer. Verse 7. Paul writes, But just as you excel in everything, he's writing now to the Corinthians, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, See that you excel in this grace of giving. Now, you know, I know that Paul has spoken a lot about the things that were wrong with the Corinthian church. But on many levels, they were a great church. They were an amazingly gifted church. They were gifted people there. They had spiritual gifts in abundance and tongues and prophecy and words of knowledge and miracles. They were charismatic in every sense of the word. But Paul also encourages them to excel in this grace of giving. Now, the Greek word for grace is charis, from which we get our English word charismatic. And it's interesting to note here that Paul, on four occasions in this chapter, when he is speaking about a monetary offering, he is speaking of the word grace. In verse 1, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian Christians. Verse 6, we urge Titus to bring to completion this act of grace. Verse 7, see that you excel in this grace of giving. And in verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why does Paul use this word grace when he is talking about financial gifts to help impoverished Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem for this early church? But well, grace, as we know, means undeserved favor; it means unearned love. And grace is so wonderfully described for us in verse nine of this chapter: "For you know the grace of God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for you sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty." might become rich. Now, I'm sure that uh, many people who have been Christians any length of time have probably underlined or colored that verse in their Bible. as one of the great verses of the New Testament. And it's written originally in the context of encouraging people to uh, give generously. And and that uh, verse really is a gospel in a verse. You know, we all love stories, don't we, of uh, rags to riches stories of those people who have been born in abject poverty and uh, throughout their life, either through some skill that they had or through some good fortune, they become millionaires. And we love those stories. But Paul is talking here not of a rags to riches story, he's talking of a riches to rags story. When he's speaking of Jesus, how he was rich in that he enjoyed the majesty and splendor of heaven. Unbroken communion with the Father, that he was subject to adoring angels, yet he came, he gave that up and came into this world as a babe. He ultimately died upon a cross in the most horrendous, shameful death that there ever was invented by man. Why? So that we might become rich. You see, those who have Christ are the richest people on earth. And you might not have five pounds to your name, but you're a multi-millionaire in another sense. And the person who understands grace understands that they that we are owe everything that we have to God. That we ourselves have been bought with a price. That we now belong to God. There's a great hymn that we sing, and we'll sing it later. Final verse which says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And in verse 9, Paul is presenting... These reluctant Corinthians who are not really wanting to put their hands in their pockets. And first of all, he's holding up Exhibit A, the Macedonians. They lived in extreme poverty and look at the way they gave. Exhibit B, Jesus himself, who became poor to make them and us rich. (laughs) You see, the New Testament teaches grace-giving, not law-giving. Now, you may say, what on earth are you talking about, Steve? What's what's that all about? Paul says in verse 8, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love. Why doesn't he say to them, I'm commanding you as an apostle, based on the Old Testament teaching of God's law. Why doesn't he say to them, I want you to tithe to give a tenth of your income? And the answer for that is that New Testament standards are very different to Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the law required one-tenth of a person's produce, of the produce of the land to be given in support of the Levites and the priests who led the community in worship. An additional tenth of their income was required every third year and placed in local storehouses for the distribution of the poor and needy. But Paul did not command or set any fixed percentage of income. His appeal to them was altogether different because it was based on grace. In other words, what he was saying to them, freely you have received, freely give. That was the essence of what is being spoken about here. And it's interesting that Paul never uses Old Testament arguments for Christians. Now, to tell you the truth, I've met so many Christians, I've met so many Christian pastors actually, who actually misunderstand this. That Paul never uses Old Testament arguments for Christians. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, when... Paul was addressing the man who was having a sexual affair with his stepmother heaven forbid he doesn't start by saying to that man seventh commandment thou shalt not commit adultery no he doesn't do that because that's an Old Testament argument that he doesn't use to Christians he uses an altogether different argument And what he says in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 is, Do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You see, the New Testament principle of giving is not some command of a fixed amount. Not at all. And... I would say please, please, please don't get your Old Testament and your New Testament mixed up. Rather the New Testament standards freely you have have received, freely give. The New Testament, it's the Macedonians they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability follow their example. The New Testament says excel in the grace of giving. You see if anything the standards of the New Testament go up not down. And Paul says that he wanted to test the sincerity of their love. And I suppose it's easy to say to God, I love you. And to join in, as we've been doing this morning, and it's been absolutely wonderful here, just to come before God and to praise him with hands raised and hearts full of joy that we are his people. And to do that and to give our words of worship and praise and to be lost in wonder, love and praise as I'm sure that the Corinthians were enjoying. But you see, if our words and our worship don't affect our pockets, then probably our words are pretty empty. And if Paul was writing today, he might have said, on the basis of what we have in his writings here, he might have said to us, put your money where your mouth is, because that's essentially what he's saying. And Paul is saying that their faith and love is validated through their giving. If they cannot love their brothers and sisters in Christ, then how can they possibly love God? Okay. I told you these words weren't going to be easy this morning. I told you that up front. And Paul Paul's no punches here. He now moves on to some very practical advice and encourages them to finish what they've started verse 10 through to 12 and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter last year you were the first not only to give but also to have the desire to do so now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do uh, that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means for if the willingness is there the gift is acceptable according to what one has not according to what one does not have. Now, this wasn't the first time, as we know, that Paul uh, wrote to the church at Corinth about this collection. Uh, He set out some of the arrangements in his uh, previous letter the year before, in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, verse 1 to 3, where he says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And I was thinking about that yesterday. And I was thinking, Paul is so practical here. And his advice uh, to the Corinthians was that on the first day of the week, to set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. And there are two important principles here. The first is that uh, Christian giving should be systematic and regular. And Paul encourages them to give once a week, probably when the church met together. So so why is that so important? Well, be really, really practical here. I think Paul knows how difficult it is to give. And sometimes, you know, giving actually handing it over goes against the grain. And I think that he reckons that it would be considerably more difficult for a person to write a big check for X amount once a year than smaller amounts week by week. And Paul mentioned weekly because in those days as well, people were paid weekly or probably daily. No one would have ever been paid monthly. But these days they are. And Julie and I, um, we give to the Lord's uh, work monthly, which is when I receive a salary And we do so by direct debit because we just find that useful. And we also gift aid, and I would encourage any of you as well, because it's money for old rope. For whatever we give, the government will give uh, another 25% because we're a charity. The second reason that that Paul mentions here is that it's proportional. It's in keeping with one's income. Let's go back to uh, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verses 11 and 12. Paul notes there that it's according to your means if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Now, I've heard over the years, and it's really interesting this, that some Christians have come up to me and said, um, uh, if I come into some money, I'll donate well to the Lord's work. <laughs> I've, I've, I've actually heard that on a few occasions. Uh, should my numbers come up on the lottery, then... Um, then I'll write a a large church uh, check for the church. But you see, Paul sort of undercuts that here. And he says that the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what, what one does not have. In other words, God is not expecting you to write checks of hundreds of thousands of pounds if you haven't got it, but just make sure that you do know with what you have. That's his argument here. And what matters most is the attitude of generosity. In one sense, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need anything. He's, he's almighty God. However, he desires our hearts. And he loves it when we trust him and when we respond with a generous heart because that is the heart that God has. He is a generous, generous God. And it doesn't matter if the amount is small, if that's all that we with a clear conscience can can give. It was George Muller, that great man of faith and God who, who um, um, put all the houses up in Bristol for orphans uh, in the 18th, 1800s. He was the one that said that God judges uh, what we give by what we keep. That's an interesting quote, isn't it? Okay, verse 13. he has no desire that by their giving that the Christ- corinthians should them themselves lose out whereas the, the the people in jerusalem that they should gain what he is speaking for no is is a quality here there was a time you see when the jerusalem christians gave to everyone as they had need but now through persecution and through famine that they themselves had come upon hard times and that they needed financial help from others when Julie and I together with our young children went through theological college we were blessed by many financial gifts including from uh, gifts from people who really were not well off and couldn't afford it and it was very humbling wasn't it it was incredibly humbling and to tell you the truth some of the people who gave us gifts because they saw that what we were doing was a a big step of faith, leaving our home, leaving our jobs to go into college to train for for ministry. Some of them didn't have two brass farthings to rub together, as they say. And I remember one gentleman, and there were many actually, but there was one gentleman, Graham Way. Remember Graham? Graham was a a part-time car park attendant. And... One day, he gave me an envelope in the foyer just before the the meeting started of our church in Swansea, and it contained 50 pounds, which was a huge amount of money. And it was a lot of money then, you know, sort of anyway, because you know we're talking of the early 80s, and it was 50 pounds, and it was 50 pounds that he he could not afford. And he and others made those sacrifices, and it was so humbling. These days, thankfully, Julie and I are in a place where we are able to offer financial support to others. And it's, it's, it's not a problem. It's a joy. It's a joy of our hearts. You see, if we regard our money not as our money but as God's money, it's much easier to hold that lightly in our hands and to use that which God has given us, not as owners of it but as stewards of it, that we are to give it to others who require it. And Paul, even more practically, he's very, very practical in this chapter. He talks about the details of how this collection is going to get to Jerusalem. And in doing so, he lays down some really important principles for us. And what he does, he, he sends Titus, we've come across him before, Titus and two other Christians uh, with this offering to the people in Jerusalem. Some scholars believe that one of, the, the, of those was either Luke or Barnabas. But there's an important verse in uh, 20 and 21 where he says we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. I quite like the way the message uh, puts that. And it says, we don't want anyone suspecting us of taking one penny of this money for ourselves. We're being careful in our reputation with the public as in our reputation with God. That's why we're sending another trusted friend along. You see, whenever money is collected, every effort must be made to avoid accusations of dishonesty. Those who deal with finances must not only do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, obviously, but also do what is right in the eyes of other people. Um, did, you, did you know that the first Christian treasurer had his hand in the till? Did you know that? His name was Judas Iscariot. We read of that in the, in, in, in the New Testament. So Paul here appointed three people, Titus plus two others, to oversee this offering. And in our church... There will always be, on a Sunday morning, two people who will count the offering from the box at the back. And that's not because uh, we're questioning the trustworthiness of any of our our counters. Of course not. But it's to avoid any possible criticism. In the Elim Church here in Tamworth and our our linked community charity, the Manor House Charity, you have to have two people, not just one, to sign any cheque. If you're doing an online payment, it's two people who have to do that. Uh, And by the way, the two people can't be Dan and me because we're family. So it has to be separate people. In addition to this, our accounts are audited annually. So anyone can see the books. Every year we hold an AGM. So that we are fully transparent with all of our finances. And anyone who is a part of our church family, we don't have a formal membership... You can come along at that. And I would actually encourage you, please don't take the night off when we host this meeting. I know that some people do that. They think, oh, I, I don't want to talk about all that stuff. Please do. It's really, really, really important that you're there. And I think that the eldership team make an absolutely amazing job. And we need to be accountable to you. So so it's something that we, we need. We need your presence. And I would go as far as to say that it's your Responsibility to be there. Lots of practical stuff this morning. My word. You know, so when we sort of take this scripture written 2,000 years ago in its original context and then think about it a little bit, the amazing spiritual principles that it has for us today is quite astonishing. Time's gone. Let me finish with a quote. Great quote from Rick Warren, pastor of the Saddleback uh, Church in America. He says this, every time I'm generous, it makes God smile. It brings happiness to the heart of God. Every time I'm generous, God goes, that's my boy, that's my girl. Like father, like son, like father, like daughter, God loves it. Those of you who are parents, are you happy when your kids learn to share? Of course. Does it bring you pleasure when you see your children being generous? Of course it does. And God is the same with you. It makes God smile when you are generous. Amen.